Welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, Episode 20, Objects to Observe in June 2020. How are you this afternoon, Shane? <laughs> I am pretty good. How about yourself? Well, we're doing good here, just having a few technical problems, but uh, I think we'll probably get those sorted out later this week. So we're just going to do one podcast this week and then uh, be back to the usual of doing two a week next week. Sound good? Sounds good. And I think, I think this is episode 18. Oh, is it episode 18? Yeah. My apologies. I'm no worries. <laughs> no worries. Don't no, worry I, about editing that. I, okay. It stays. <laughs> Yeah, this is sort of the prairie one, so uh, slightly out of sequence in our uh, in our order. I was just reading my my subject notes, but thank you very much for the correction. Yeah. All right, so maybe we'll talk uh, about a few astronomical terms to to get started on this uh, sort of what's up in the in the sky for June 2020. So one thing that you and I are going through right now is this business of perpetual twilight. Oh yes, the the astronomers, I don't know, kind of dark moments, but not really dark dark because we can't observe. So we, uh, I think it was on my first or second year here, we went out to to a spot and had a good look at it because I'd never seen it before, uh, being from further uh, southern reaches. And uh, I guess once you get much above 47 degrees north latitude, you'll, you'll start to get nights or even around midnight where it's not completely dark and you actually see almost like the last little bit of sunset uh, on the distant horizon, you can get up to a high point. And I remember that night uh, was in like June, um, like I said, seven or eight years ago. And uh, you could actually see uh, the sun set in the west. And then there was like that little bit of glow, that little last bit of sunset, um, just a small amount. And then it, it started moving to from the west to the north, northwest, right to the north and then back across uh, into the northeast. It was really something to see, but of course, once you get uh, too far into June, it means that it, it doesn't really get dark at all anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, typically for the month of June, we, you, we don't travel too far for dark skies because we can't get dark skies at this time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't things to look at or observe. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so one of the first things we have coming up is uh, the inferior conjunction of Venus, which is going to be on the 3rd. And so that's when Venus is uh, more or less right beside the sun and then in the daytime sky. And so of course uh, it's not visible uh, during the evening, but what's happening here is we're transitioning from Venus being uh, an observable planet in the evening sky to being an, uh, an observable planet over the next uh, several months, uh, starting in July and being, being well observable uh, into October, November timeframe. So I'm looking forward to getting up and getting some of those observations coming. Yeah, so how early would uh, would Venus be visible, I guess, um, in the mornings during that time? Well, the neat part about that is, and I, I you know, I, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm being hard on you, but I, I don't think you like to get up in the morning as, as much as I do and observe. Is that a fair comment? That's a fair comment. Once I go to bed, I like to stay there until it's, you know, wake up time. <laughs> I, I think that's normal. So you're a normal person. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, I do like to get up and if, and if I see it's good for astronomy, I'll, I'll hop out and do some or even drive somewhere. Um, so, but the, but the way that this works is that it will be highest, um, while the sky is getting bright. So for example, all you need to do is, is to figure out, and you, have, I think you have a pretty good spot for making these observations. Cause I think as long as you go out, 
um, just around sunrise. So you don't have to worry about getting up too, too early. I think it'd be like five or so for you. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, what you could do is spot Venus and then you can kind of make some observations of Venus uh, before the sun, you know, sort of comes up behind any, any buildings that are in behind your place or whatever. I think there's some, some houses or something just to your, uh, just to your east. So um, you actually could take advantage of, of this. That will probably be sort of more into the uh, mid to end of July timeframe for you to, to be up and, and making those observations. So yeah, you don't have to get up too, too early and you can observe it in a, in a bright sky, just the business of finding it before it gets, uh, uh, the sky it's too bright to make it difficult to find but you can see it just just right before sunrise so figure out whatever sunrise is and then you can start there right on all right so let's see i i think i i think this is sort of like a novel approach for us i actually sent you a copy of the notes for this uh podcast yeah wow this is really structured we <laughs> have rigor for this one wow i was like wow i better be i better be organized but so one that you can see is on the right side. I've uh, I've included the an, an image of the observer's handbook uh, for all the June events, and that's what these are based on. Um, and these are um, basically the sky events for the month. And in the observer's handbook, which is a handbook for astronomical observations that's put out annually, it's an annual publication by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. It's available through Sky and Telescope and other online retailers. And uh, it's a physical book, uh, which is great. You can, you can just throw it in the car and take it with you. And then uh, it sort of lists all the, more or less, it's the planetary happenings, um, night to night, not as much with the, uh, with the deep sky, of course. So, um, so that's where we're starting. So June 1st, uh, that's going to be, well, tomorrow for us, and, and maybe this podcast will make it out by tomorrow, but that's going to be the best night to observe Mercury. And we really just have a very few nights to observe Mercury as it's at its greatest uh, eastern elongation, meaning that it's visible in the, uh, in the evening skies here. And it's going to rise to about 24 degrees uh, away from the sun. So just at sunset, it's going to be uh, about two and a half this uh, above the horizon, if people can recall the, the sky measurements. So have you ever observed uh, Mercury before? Not through a telescope. Uh, I've observed it a, a number of times naked eye. Mm. So Mercury is one of those uh, sort of like a, well, it's a, it's an interior planet. So inside of Earth's orbit. And because of that, um, like with Venus, it, it, it sticks very close to the sun and Mercury is even closer to the sun than Venus is. So we only have a very few short days, uh, you know, every, every one of its orbits. Uh, to actually see it in, in our skies. And it's always going to be just either uh, right around sunset or just right around sunrise that, that you're able to view it. In fact, uh, it can be a little challenging to see here, not so much. Like you will really want to see Mercury, just find that date, hope it's clear, go out into the open prairie, look in the right direction, and boom, you're going to make your observation. It's not too bad. For it's sure. Quite magical to do that here. Um, out east where I'm from, not so much. You got a rock or a tree or a little hill in the way and uh, that can really scuttle your, your plans. It really doesn't, doesn't take much to uh, get something that's up there. You know, it is so challenging uh, to observe. You know, you just need to make sure that you're lined up in the right direction that uh, I believe the, the myth or legend is, maybe it's, it's not a myth, but more of a legend, I don't know if it's true or not, is that the great astronomer Copernicus actually never saw Mercury. 
Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. The first time I actually saw it was, um, it was quite close to Venus. This was a number of years ago. And Venus is what stood out because of how bright it was. And then as I was just naked eye observing Venus, I noticed Mercury was almost right beside it, which was kind of a neat thing. Well, well, that's an excellent observation. Like, good for you to actually make that observation then, because, uh, you know, lots of other people wouldn't have made that. So that's, that's good. Um, I have observed it through a telescope. Boy, if there is any planet not to write home about, uh, <laughs> boy, it is. Yeah, it's not so great. Um, and the reason is, is that because it never rises very high above our horizon, it's going to be very orangish. And it's even though the planets typically aren't, aren't as affected, as affected as, as a star is as far as like the twinkling is concerned, it's so low that it twinkles and it's so low that even though mercury really looks like the moon it's 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 almost like a like a cousin of our moon in the, at least in appearance anyway it's, it's a gray cratered surface but it's so low that that little ball that little planet on our horizon is going to look orange and the reason is it's just like when our moon uh, is like the harvest moon you know when it's rising in the fall or or another time of year when it has this like long uh, rise phase where it's very oblique or if there's any kind of haze in the atmosphere you really see it as orange well mercury is so far down and and its angle is such that uh, typically you almost always see it as that orange color and through a telescope when it's close to the horizon like that uh, you really can't see it very well of course um, and one thing I hope to do is kind of get a, a situation set up where I'm able to observe it uh, as it's passing overhead so that's that's sort of the the long-term plan for me this year is to finally get that kind of setup going. And I've got a bit of a plan on the go for that. So, Oh, neat. So uh, like a daytime observation of Mercury is the, your goal? Yeah. Yeah. So when, uh, what I plan to do is just be able to set up the scope. And then as, as the sun uh, goes behind uh, the house, then I know that it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to get a view of the sun accidentally. And of course, that's always the danger here. We talk about interior planets like Mercury and Venus is that um, you got to be careful not to accidentally view the sun. Of course, any view through a telescope of the sun uh, will cause permanent and irreparable eye damage immediately. Uh, so you have to be careful for that. But once the sun is below um, sort of my immediate horizon, meaning that the sun's gone below the house, uh, then I can kind of trail after it with the telescope. And then, you know, my telescope is very small. I mean, it only weighs five and a half pounds. So I can kind of sort of just keep moving it back through the yard, uh, you know, until I'm kind of, you know, right, right beside the back fence. Um, so I should be able to be able to view it for maybe like three or four hours in an afternoon. So oh, wow. something I've always kind of wanted to set up. I've got a pretty good situation. I think you're, you're actually similarly uh, aligned, so to speak, with the... <laughs> You know, with the grid of our town. So even though we live in you know, opposite ends of the town, you uh, you could probably do about the same. Yep. All right. So let's see. On Mercury, you're not going to see anything unless it's up overhead. And even then, it's going to be pretty dusky to see. Uh, but just to cite it, right now is a great time to go out right at sunset. Um, wait till that sun goes down, and then Mercury will be visible for almost 40 minutes. Um, I think here in Saskatchewan, the actual altitude is just 10 degrees. So that's only one fist above the horizon. So it's not even really going to be. And of course, we're in perpetual twilight now uh, here in Regina. And so it's not even going to be dark here. But um, you're going to look to the west, northwest. And then uh, that's kind of where you're going to see it in the same general area that Venus uh, was sitting recently. So that, that's kind of the same general area to look. Perfect. I'll, uh, hopefully the, Are you going to go and try to view it? 
Well, the forecast is looking a little questionable for tomorrow night. And I think we're supposed to continue with these gale force winds. So yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yeah. In the other for, in the other podcast that uh, uh, we were kind of set to do today, I was going to talk about astronomical seeing a little bit with you as a little bit of a joke, because we really haven't even been able to do any astronomy this week because it's been so darn windy. Yeah, it's been terrible. So June 3rd, moving on from okay. Mercury, on June 3rd, Venus is going to be at inferior conjunction. So do you remember what you were doing about eight years ago uh, this past week or this week? <laughs> nope, I don't. Was that, was that the transit of Venus? That was the transit of Venus. Well, I was in Banff uh, where it poured rain the whole time. Yes, I, I remember. <laughs> you didn't observe with me. Yeah. I, I was here in Regina and had clear skies and uh, Randall Rosenfeld came down and or came up from Ontario. He stayed with me and went and did some other observing. And uh, so we had a nice view of the transit of Venus and the transit of Venus is when Venus crosses the sun and that only happens every well the last time before that was in 1882 the year that Regina was founded and so the next time was in uh, I think it was gee I think it was uh, 2013 no uh, that's not right 2012 but then it was eight years prior to that all so, right right so it was like 2004 I guess so um, but here's what I'm going to do and see I've gone and edited this because uh -oh. I, don't, I don't want to give you all, all my little things that I'm going to throw at you, right? I got to make this a bit of a surprise. So I'm <laughs> going to give you a challenge this week. Right. <laughs> so you have that really nice hydrogen alpha telescope. We talked about that in one of the more recent episodes. That's right. So check this out. And I, I ran this in my planetarium software that between 11.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., and this would be only for people with very specialized solar observing equipment. Do not look at the sun if you uh, do not have one of these really expensive and fancy hydrogen alpha telescopes like Shane has, and I do not. Um, Venus is going to be only 12 arc minutes away from the sun. So this is very close. Okay. Now, during the transit of Venus, when Venus was this close, I was able to use a telescope, I think identical to yours, if not slightly inferior that, a, that another club member had. And I was actually able to observe Venus when it was that close. Through the hydrogen so, alpha. Through a hydrogen alpha telescope. So hmm. Shane, I think between 11.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. this June 3rd, that's Wednesday, yep. I think you could go out and try to observe Venus. That would be phenomenal. If you did that, I think that that would be the first time anybody has ever done that. <laughs> that would be quite a feat. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll put it in the calendar. I think our weather forecast for Wednesday is looking pretty good right now. Yeah. Right around um, lunch. So you don't yeah. have to take any time off work. No, this is, well, and, you know, still working from home this week. So as I, uh, it, the convenience factor is high. I, I will give it a try if it's clear. Yeah, I would, I would so look forward to hearing your observations. And if you can even do like, uh, like a bad sketch, I do lots of bad sketching. So maybe I can inspire you to, to do it as well. But, uh, but it's, it, the neat part is with this is I kind of had heard that it would be that close. And I didn't really think much of it because I thought, as often as the case with astronomy events, that this might be very transient, like very short lived. But this, this lasts for a really, really long time. So that whole two hour period, um, 
I think it varies between like 12 and a half and 14 hours. Like it is, it is close enough during a significant amount of that time. You know, I think, I think you could have success. And if not, you can view the sun and report back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, one way or another, I'll have a, an observation to report. <laughs> cool. Good stuff. All right. So then the next step, there's a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, going on at the very start of this month. So on June 4th, that's when Mercury is actually at its greatest elongation east. Um, but the best time to view it, of course, is, is tomorrow night. Then on June 5th, uh, the moon will be in a penumbral lunar eclipse. So do, do you know what a penumbral is? Lunar eclipse? Oh, I always forget the definition of uh, penumbral. And what's the other one? Um, sorry? You can't, you can't see the penumbrals. Oh, it's, it's, it's when it's going in the uh, sort of the outer reaches of the shadow of the moon. Uh -huh. And then when it's going through a, like a total one, like that we're going to actually see, that's when it's going through the umbra. Right, umbra and penumbra. Got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this one's just going through the outside, and I, I've seen people take photos of these penumbral eclipses before, so that's cool. As far as I know, it's not really a visual event. Like I've tried to see them before, and maybe you can kind of see it dimming down. It kind of looks maybe like a very light cloud is passing in front of the moon. So I mean, you know, if you happen to have really good skies and uh, Maybe a lot of people are bored out there uh, with all the still pandemic lockdowns in place. Um, you know, that could be interesting. But if people take photos of it, you, you will see some, uh, some dimming on that, uh, on that lunar surface on the evening. And it goes on for some hours. So, but like I said, like I can't even run it in my software really give more details than that because I'm visual. It's not really visual. So it's not something I would personally would look for. So let's see. Moon and planet pairings. So we have a whole bunch of moon and planet pairings this, this month. It's going to be really, really nice. So, um, but they're all morning events for you, Shane. So it's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> well, geez, I guess I have to change my lifestyle. <clears throat> so the planets, um, let's see, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, then Neptune. They're going to pair with the moon this month. And then Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, they're never far apart, being just five to six degrees apart all month. Uh, well, Mars and Neptune, they get as close uh, as I think 1.7 degrees. So on wow. June 8th, yeah, yeah, they're going to be super close. So the actual challenge I was originally going to give you, because I thought every month I'm going to give Shane a challenge. <laughs> and maybe, maybe if it doesn't work out or, I mean, this, this one is actually a, a, a more accomplishable feat perhaps than, than trying to make a, an observation of Venus like I've laid out for you. But um, you can actually see all the planets all the uh, main planets this month are the currently uh, the classified eight. So on June 8th and 9th, Jupiter, so that's one, um, is going to be two degrees north of the moon. Then the next morning, Saturn, so that's two planets, will be three degrees north of the moon. So it's going to be one of those situations, again, where you can take a really wide field pair of binoculars, like a nine or, or a 10 degree. In fact, really old binoculars, often like I have a brand from Sears that are at my parents' place, and they have this 10 or 12 degree field of view, it's huge. Uh, those are like ideal for doing this. So that's Jupiter and Saturn. They're going to be close to the moon on June 8th and 9th. Then on the 12th, we're going to have Mars just 1.7 degrees south of Neptune. So Mars being the third one, Neptune being the fourth one. 
you can get lots of observations in. So on June 12th, Mars, Mars also reaches 10 arc minutes. So that's going to make it large enough to begin to see clearly uh, lots of details such as Sirtis Major and uh, maybe a south polar cap or something like that. So then on the 13th, Mars is going to be three degrees north of the moon. So Mars and Neptune are still going to be really close. So you're going to have uh, Mars three degrees north of the moon. Um, and then of course, uh, Neptune very, very close to Mars as well. So that's going to give you, uh, so far we're at Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, and Neptune on the 17th. This one I think is pretty tough. I don't know if this is actually really a possible observation, but you can see Uranus uh, four degrees north of the moon, right? Mm -hmm. And we've also talked about Mercury at the start. So that's seven. And then towards the end of the month, you're actually going to have Venus begin to be visible in the morning sky, like right at the very end of the month, the last few days. So you can get up uh, early and just after, or just before sunrise. If you look to the uh, look to the east, you'll see Venus. So also, sorry, Shane, go ahead. No, I, was, I was just going to say that's pretty neat. Um, and just uh, for context, when we're talking, you know, 1.7 degrees to three degrees to four degrees, you know, that's all visible within one telescopic field of view, depending on your telescope style. But man, that is really cool to be able to see multiple planets in one field of view through a telescope. Um, I, I think you've convinced me to wake up. Yeah, this month, this is going to be the month to to wake up and, and to go out and take a look at these, like just take a look at your astronomy software. Like, you know, for example, I'm not sure what you get with your uh, with your 76 and a, and a 24 panoptic. What's your max field of view? Like three and a half degrees? Or yeah, like yeah, yeah. About three and a half, I believe. So, and you still have your your 61, do you? I still have the 61. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I would I would maybe use the 61 because you're going for the grand total here versus uh, like you're just trying to see this stuff versus making observations maybe. Um, but you know whatever works for you. Uh, but that, yeah, that Jupiter, two degrees north of the moon, and then Saturn, three degrees north of the moon, with them being five or six degrees apart. And I think with your 31 Nagler in that uh, in that little scope, you should have somewhere around a six and a half degree field of view, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's quite large. So it's so, right around there. Yeah, you, you should be able to just fit the two planets in. Uh, otherwise, they'll just be really close. And then on those other mornings, you uh, you should be able to get like the moon and Jupiter and then the moon and Saturn. That would be super cool on the 8th to be able to see that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the following night to be able to see uh, uh, Mars and Neptune. I think that would be that would be possible. Um, and then Mars and the moon on the 13th. And then Uranus and the moon on the 17th. That's going to be tough. And it's four degrees apart. So I think definitely using your, your William optics for that one. And that's going to be fairly far down in the, uh, in the Eastern sky in the morning. So I don't know, that's right about solstice, not a lot of dark. Yeah. Uh, Uranus is going to be, going to be pretty tough. The others are, are going to be good though, but if you don't try it, you won't know. That's right. On June 20th, we have our solstice. Nothing to see there. I don't like putting things in which aren't actual observable events. I guess maybe if you did like some sort of ancient Greek um, 
staff in a hole and then traced out the line or if you get into a bottom of a well somewhere um, you might be able to to you know make some sort of observational or scientific um, <laughs> practice but yeah no it's not really something that you can see and of course our night here will be uh, just a few short hours long uh, and not not very dark at all anyway so uh, and then on the 21st, there's actually an annual solar eclipse for Central Africa, and uh, that includes uh, the Central African Republic, Congo, Ethiopia, and stretches through south of Pakistan into northern India and China. And of course, new moon occurs on that day as well. But uh, with the annular solar eclipse, again, you always have to use safe uh, solar viewing practices like one of these hydrogen alpha telescopes like you use, you cannot look at the sun with the unaided eye. And this is not one of those eclipses that you can ever view um, without any, any protection. So you must wear protection at all times in order to view this one because um, the sun will not be completely covered by the moon. Of course, it's gonna leave this big uh, halo of sun around it. And uh, of course, any little bit of sun can uh, and will damage your vision. So that's kind of the story on that. So. Don't, don't annular eclipses, like every time there's a total eclipse the following year, there's an annular. Is that how that works? There's some sort of connection between the two. Yeah, that, that's my understanding. I really don't know. I mean, you know more about eclipses than I do. You've seen uh, 10 times as many. So <laughs> I've only seen some partials. I, you're the only one out of us that's, that's seen the, the totals just for lack of uh, proximity to to where we live and uh, I'm also a deep sky observer. So more into that than, than the sun. But yeah, that's my understanding. My understanding is that that's kind of the cadence of it that one year you get one and the next year you get another. Yeah. We also have some shadow transits coming up on, on Jupiter. Now I looked at these, but they're not really visible from, from North America. So this is gonna take place on uh, the 4th, 11th and 18th. And what happens is you're going to have some uh, some of the moons transiting um, Jupiter. So what what is a transit? Have you seen a, a transit of a moon on Jupiter before, Shane? Oh yeah, many times. So a transit is when, um, well, typically the the one of the four Galilean moons, uh, which are the four brightest moons around Jupiter, um, when they travel across the face of Jupiter. Um, now we often lose sight of the moon just because of how bright Jupiter is, but the moon will cast a little black shadow on the surface of Jupiter, which is really fun to observe. Yeah, so these are gonna happen on the 4th at 1120 universal time, on the 11th at 2.30 p.m. universal time, 14.30, and on the 18th at 18.30 universal time. So unfortunately, those don't work well for us here. Uh, West coast of North America, maybe that last one, uh, but other people in other parts of the world, like uh, China, different places, I think, I think they're all visible from China. So that would be cool if uh, anybody is out there listening and could take a look at those. But yeah, so I was the first time I ever observed one, I had uh, one of those really inexpensive uh, 80 millimeter acromats. And I was observing Jupiter and my cousin, this was on like Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve Eve or something like that. And my cousin was coming up to spend Christmas with us and drove in the driveway and got out of the car. He's like, oh, cool. You're looking through one of your telescopes and walks over and looks in. He goes, what's the black dot? And I hadn't actually noticed it. I was like, oh, wow. Black dot. 
and so I, I relooked. Oh my gosh, it's uh, it's one of the transits which I was kind of waiting for, but I can't remember. It may have been such that he pulled up and we chatted for five minutes or ten minutes or something, and then when we walked back over and looked in, the, the shadow had come onto the disc, right, or something to that effect. Um, but I could re we could really see it then. It was a lot of fun, and that that was like a hundred dollar telescope. And I have another one of these hundred dollar telescopes that uh, I'm hoping you can take a look at here in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, they to to observe any of these shadow transits on Jupiter, you certainly do need a telescope. I don't think binoc well, I guess large binoculars would probably show it, um, but a telescope would uh, almost be required. And um, you know, if you do decide to observe this, and you you're not seeing it at first, just give it some time. Like the the actual shadow is quite small, and it may take you a couple minutes to locate it. But once you see it, you can't not see it after that. It becomes very apparent. Sounds good, Shane. Yeah. Um, I've added some things to the list, Chris. Um, because it is perpetual twilight, uh, we don't you know we don't go to dark skies to observe galaxies or nebula or anything of that nature. But um, you can still do some double star observing even in perpetual twilight. Uh, and you can do it from the city. Light pollution doesn't necessarily affect it. And there's a few interesting double stars that are starting to rise in the east that um, are always fun to look at. And then there's a, a couple in, um, well, there's one in, or no, there's a couple in Virgo here that I want to take a look at. Okay. Um, so... Rising in the east, um, maybe I'll start off with a little bit of a challenging one, um, and that's so the. Can I can I just like hop in and just ask a really basic question first? Absolutely. So, what is a double star, and why should you look at them? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good. Good question. Um, so, a double star is um, it. It really means a multiple star system. Um, so, uh, the majority of the stars in the sky are are not individual stars. Um, isolated, but they're actually part of a multiple star system and they usually orbit around each other. And uh, there's, a, there's oftentimes more than just one star within the system. There can be two, three, four, five, six, and beyond. And they all kind of interact upon each other. Um, what makes these interesting? Well, there's a number of reasons that make these interesting. Um, sometimes that orbital period is so frequent that it actually changes the brightness of the stars um, and you know they are known as variable stars um, when that happens uh, but also sometimes there's different colored stars that are paired together um, sometimes they form very interesting arrangements uh, there's a number of reasons to look at them and I find them kind of fascinating they also contest your optics too an awful lot uh, depending on how close they are and also depending on the difference in magnitude or, or how bright each star is. If you have a, a real bright one beside a real dim one, sometimes that can prove to be very challenging um, depending on seeing conditions in your optics. I remember reading in uh, Burnham's Celestial Handbook, which uh, although it's, it's uh, somewhat out of print, I guess, and, and maybe quite a bit out of date being, being written uh, several decades ago now, still makes an excellent resource. But I remember in that it would have all these diagrams showing the orbits of all these stars and if you kind of make your observations long enough you you could basically trace out the orbit of one of these stars around another absolutely yeah and it's a it's a field of astronomy where uh, where amateur astronomers can make real contributions to the science of astronomy 
Um, a number of these double stars, um, they, they really don't get measured or observed by professional observatories. And there's a number of these systems that require some ongoing measurement in order to validate their orbital periods, um, their separation angles. There's all sorts of scientific data associated with these things that if an amateur uh, was really, I guess, kind of determined or ambitious uh, and enjoyed double star observing, you can, you can actually record a lot of data and submit it to, I think it's the WDS, the Washington, what is it, Washington Double Star Society or something like that. I'm not sure cool. what uh, the acronym is, but um, I'm not at that level. I'm, I'm not, I just like looking at them. I'm not uh, into recording all of the, the data that goes with them. Yeah. So what ones do you have for us this month? Well, um, rising in the east uh, is Cygnus, which is a, you know, a, a very prominent summer constellation in the heart of the Milky Way. Uh, it forms a cross, um, or the prominent stars in the constellation form a cross. And if you go to the very bottom tip of the cross, there's a star called Alberio. And this one is kind of interesting. It does not actually meet the definition of <laughs> what a double star is. You know, a system of stars interacting upon each other. This is just a visual double. They're actually not at all associated. But what makes these really neat to look at is one is a kind of an orangey star. And then the other one is a blue star. And to have them so close together, um, when you see the color contrast, it really jumps out at you. And uh, it's a very pretty double. I look at it multiple times throughout the year. Um, it's easy to find and really telescopes of any aperture can split this and show those colors quite well. I'm sure you've looked at it a number of times. Yeah, yeah, I've looked at it a fair bit. Yeah. Um, and then in Virgo, there's a couple that I'll point out. Um, one is uh, the, I think it might even be the Alpha Star in Virgo, uh, Porima. Is that, do you know if that's Alpha? Porima. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a perfectly matched pair. So it's just two identical white stars uh, beside each other, same magnitudes, and uh, fairly easy to split in, in most telescopes. And then um, in Virgo, that's, uh, it's known as Struve 1740. Uh, it's two yellow stars beside each other. So again, you get some color, which you don't always see um, in the stars. Um, and then moving into a couple of uh, more challenging doubles, uh, close to Cygnus, Lyra, the constellation of Lyra is also rising. And there's a very famous uh, double star called the Double Double. And have you ever looked at that one, Chris? Yep. Yep. So it's um, at first, you, you might just see two prominent stars um, that are fairly close, but you know, very easy to split, you know, even binoculars will split them. But those two prominent stars are actually both pairs of doubles. And if you increase your magnification, or um, if you have a good night of seeing, it becomes very easy to split those two. So that's why it's called the double-double. Uh, but it is also a good test for seeing. If you're unable to split the those two closer ones, um, you know that it might not that the atmospheric conditions might not be that great that night. Cool. Hey, and so the, when you um, magnification, what sort of magnifications are, are we talking about here and what size telescope would you need to be uh, making this observation? Um, well, the first three, um, really a 60 millimeter telescope will probably 
get you um, or will allow you to split those. Um, magnification, that's a good question. I find often with double stars, in order for me to split them, I have to use 100 to 150 times, depending on how close they are. But once I split them and I locate the companion star, if I back off the magnification, I can still see it. It's For me, sometimes it's just a matter of locating the, the position of the companion star and then magnification isn't, or as much magnification is no longer required. But um, it all depends on how close they are and then the magnitudes of the stars that'll dictate what magnification you'll, you'll need to use. Hmm. And for finding these, you know, a, a good resource, I think, I think uh, you, you have a copy of the Cambridge Double Star Atlas, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good resource for people. Like we're not going to put up charts and maps and all that. We used to do that before, and it's, it's a massive amount of work. Um, I think recommending good resources is probably probably better, but uh, would you recommend the Cambridge Double Star Atlas? Oh, 100%. Um, it's fantastic. It has, oh gee, I don't know how many double stars plotted, but it that's the focus of that atlas. Although it does show you a lot of other things in the star charts, um, but if you're wanting to take on some double star observing, that's a must-have. And I think it's readily available, and I, I think it's, you know, what is it, maybe 30 to $40? Yeah, it's well well worth the price, and I believe it also is like deep sky objects and everything. I think you were just using it as a regular chart for a long time. Yep, yeah, I was. And um, what's kind of neat too, the author, I think he highlights around a hundred prominent double stars. Um, oh wow! So you know, it can be a little overwhelming sometimes to look at a list of a couple thousand double stars, but when you uh, just focus in on the asterisk ones, which are the kind of the showpiece double systems, those, uh, that makes it a lot easier for you. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, and that's about all I have here, sir. How about you? Anything else for well, June? For June, like right now, I'm just, uh, still, still doing, uh, some observation write-ups. So for me, um, with the perpetual twilight, I hope to be getting up and making these, uh, planet and moon observations. That's really what I have on my, uh, agenda. And then to really begin, uh, making some Mars observations once we, uh, get another week or so under our belts here. That's what I'm looking forward to. But yeah, other than that, I think we should wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll see you all another time. Thank you.